Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 47 to 49. Listen again for God's holy word. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, saying, I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice. It's like a person building a house by digging deep and laying the foundation on bedrock. When the flood came, The rising water smashed against that house, but the water couldn't shake the house because it was well built. But those who don't put into practice what they hear are like a person who built a house without a foundation. The flood water smashed against it, and it collapsed instantly. It was completely destroyed. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God around us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Okay, I want you to think of the wisest person you know. The wisest person you know. Got someone? I want you to hold that person in your mind and close your eyes for a moment. And imagine that person saying these words to you. Like a dog that returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats foolish mistakes. Or imagine them saying, better to live on the edge of a roof than with a contentious woman in a large house. Okay, you can open your eyes. That wise friend you had in mind After they gave you this advice, would you still consider them wise? Well, as you might guess, those gems about dog vomit and roof sitting are verses from the book of Proverbs. And let's be honest, they're not exactly the sage words of wisdom that you might want to live your life by. So then why should we read the book of Proverbs? Is there still value in this ancient wisdom that uses dog vomit as an analogy and offers bad advice about how to resolve domestic disputes with your spouse? I say yes. We may just have to work a little bit to understand and apply its wisdom. Today we embark on a six-week journey in search of wisdom. And over these next six weeks, we'll study passages from wisdom books of the Bible and try to understand what this ancient wisdom can teach us today. And let's start with the basics of wisdom literature as a literary genre in Scripture. Now, there are three books of the Bible that qualify as pure wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And even though they're all wisdom literature, the same genre, they're very different books. We'll spend these next few Sundays in Proverbs, and we'll see that it offers a rather positive, can-do view of wisdom. The writers of Proverbs personify wisdom as a woman named Lady Wisdom, an invisible force woven into the fabric of creation who can guide us into living a life according to God's moral design for the universe. 
Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, which we'll get to soon, offers a more pessimistic and even critical view of wisdom. Ecclesiastes pushes back on the simple words of wisdom we read in Proverbs and attempts to lower our expectations about the wisdom we can ever really gain in this life. And finally, the book of Job takes that critique a little further still. It challenges the conventional wisdom of the ancient sages and even questions the wisdom of God. All this to say that the ideas about wisdom put forth in Scripture are really quite diverse. And there's disagreement among these wisdom books and the sages behind them. So then even in the midst of this disagreement, what can we say are some of the common themes of biblical wisdom literature? One of the most renowned biblical experts on wisdom literature is Leo Perdue former dean and Hebrew Bible professor at Bright Divinity School. And he laid out six critical elements of wisdom for the ancient sages in Israel. Wisdom is knowledge, imagination, discipline, piety, order, and moral instruction. So let's spend a few moments unpacking those six elements a bit. First, wisdom as knowledge. Now, the word wisdom has a certain connotation in my mind. Wisdom tends to be seen as ethereal, esoteric, and eternal. But that's not the wisdom that the wisdom writers meant to convey in uh, that they were passing on in Scripture. Rather than wisdom being this ethereal truth, this sort of otherworldly truth, this wisdom was meant to be practical and contextual grounded in the observable world around them and providing practical advice for how to live our lives. Rather than being esoteric, this wisdom was for everyone. Even though this wisdom literature was written by the intellectual elite, it was meant for the average person. And rather than being eternal, that is, thinking of the Proverbs, for instance, as unchanging divine decrees that aren't subject to evolution, this wisdom was meant to be fluid, open to critique, and constantly refined and reformed. And though we won't get to it in this series, the book of Job is a great example of that because in some ways it is a critique of traditional wisdom, pushing back on some of the most commonly accepted tropes of wisdom and offering new ways of thinking about God for a new generation. Number two on Purdue's list of elements of wisdom is wisdom as imagination. Now, if wisdom as knowledge is grounded in the observation of the physical world around us, the world as it is now, then wisdom as imagination is the ability to see the world as it could be, to reveal the world that God is trying to create. Number three is wisdom as discipline. We are all students of wisdom, regardless of age or education. Wisdom, wisdom isn't something you achieve or attain, it's a lifelong pursuit. And this sentiment is captured in verses 4 and 5 this morning, which read, The Proverbs make the young knowledgeable, and those who are already wise still hear them and grow in wisdom and gain guidance. Number four, wisdom as piety. For these ancient sages, rational intellectual inquiry was not separate from faith in God. 
Because God is the source of all wisdom, one must know God and revere God in order to seek out the deepest truths of the universe. It's why the opening passage from Proverbs 1 begins with, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And fear in this verse doesn't mean to be afraid of a God who will condemn us, but rather to have a deep reverence for a God who is the source of all wisdom. Number five, wisdom as order. It refers to both the moral and cosmic order. There is a wisdom in God's moral order, which we'll take up in a moment, and there's a wisdom in God's cosmic order, the order of the universe itself, which we'll take up in a couple weeks when we get to Proverbs 8. And the sages taught that the wise found well-being by living in harmony with God's moral order and God's cosmic order. Finally, number six, wisdom as moral instruction. And even though this comes last on the list, it is the most prominent aspect of wisdom present in the book of Proverbs where we begin. And that's why we hear it right up front in chapter 1, verse 3, which is essentially the thesis of Proverbs, reading, the Proverbs provide insightful instruction, which is righteous, just, and full of integrity. Proverbs sets uh, out to give us ethical guidelines for how to live a godly life. Okay, I know that was a lot of information, maybe a little boring for some of you, uh, but I wanted to orient you as we get started on this series over the next few weeks, and so I hope you picked up on just maybe one or two little things in there that will um, make some wisdom pop for you in these next few weeks. Now, as I transition from what wisdom literature was in its original context to what it means for us today, I want to read a quote from that biblical scholar I mentioned, Leo Perdue, a quote that I think will help us make this leap from past to present. He writes, the book of Proverbs was not addressed to us. These were moral instructions addressed to ancient audiences long since gone. We must honor the past by attempting honestly to listen to its voices and by giving them a full hearing before engaging with them our, with, with them with our own questions and responses that lead to modern articulations of meaning. The church needs to claim through critical interaction and assessment a new representation of the message of the moral life proclaimed by the voices of the ancient sages. Not all proverbs are to be reclaimed, but neither are all of its teachings simply to be forgotten. So here are three of my takeaways from Purdue's words and how they'll guide our interpretation of wisdom literature in these next several weeks. First, the obvious, wisdom literature is ancient. It's addressed to another culture, another context long ago. Therefore, we'll strive first to understand this wisdom literature in its own context before applying it to ours. Second, wisdom literature was always meant to be reviewed, rethought, and reformed. Therefore, we'll examine this wisdom we hear in the coming weeks critically. We'll ask questions. We'll challenge ideas. We may even dismiss some of it as unwise in today's world. And third, wisdom is needed in the world now more than ever. And so we'll venture to take these ancient texts and reinterpret them for today. 
will seek seeds of truth in this ancient wisdom. Seeds that by the power of the Spirit can be transformed into new wisdom that can bring justice and healing and reconciliation to the world today. Finally, my spiritual conscience compels me this morning to address the Supreme Court's decision this week to overturn Roe v. Wade. And as I reflected on these past couple of days about the court's decision in light of this series that we begin today on wisdom and morality, what's front and center for me is that this is a decision intended to make a moral choice on behalf of others, on behalf of women. And this kind of forced morality goes against the biblical tradition of wisdom because it proposes a binary way of thinking about morality that denies the complexity and the contextuality of the moral life that's outlined in our Holy Scripture. Here's how that scholar Leo Perdue puts it. The sages acknowledged the reality of ambiguity. For the sages, ambiguity could mean uncertainty or doubt about a matter. But more importantly, ambiguity pointed to the realization that something could be understood or interpreted in various ways. Indeed, the sages teach the church to tolerate difference and to accept diversity in the expression of its faith and in the living out of its moral life. And I believe that that capacity for ambiguity and that respect for individual moral choice is reflected in the statements of our denomination in recent years concerning reproductive rights. Here's a statement from the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA from 2006. When an individual woman faces the decision whether to terminate a pregnancy, the issue is intensely personal and may manifest itself in ways that do not reflect public rhetoric or do not neatly fit into medical, legal, or policy guidelines. Humans are empowered by the Spirit prayerfully to make significant moral choices, including the choice to continue or end a pregnancy. Human choices should not be made in a moral vacuum, but must be based on scripture, faith, and Christian ethics. For any choice, we are accountable to God. However, even when we err, God offers to forgive us. I stand with the Presbyterian Church USA on this issue, and I'm proud to serve as a pastor in a denomination that has the wisdom to trust women to make their own moral choices choices that God has entrusted to them. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.